denied, rejected, insufficient funds. Have you ever had that moment where you hand it to the, to the cashier and you hope that it works? Have you ever had this one? This is probably um, one, this is one I've never had, but where you hand them one of these and you know how they pull the marker out, right? They've got the marker and they, you know, and is it real? Have you ever had it where it wasn't? Where you, you have. Oh my goodness, what was that like? Oh, I can only imagine. Could, I couldn't imagine what it would be like to know that you have this bill that you know has value and then to hand it to someone and have them say, no value, right? Maybe they keep it, maybe they throw it in the trash. If nothing else, you want to hang it on your wall because that would be an amazing moment right there. Our money uh, should have value. And when it doesn't, it's a problem. There's actually a lot that goes into making sure that our money does have value to protect against counterfeit. There's the thread that goes through the left side. There's the security ribbon that goes down the middle. There's the color shifting um, ink that happens. It's kind of like a hologram there on the bill. There's the watermark of Benjamin Franklin's face. There's all of these things that go into making sure that our money cannot be counterfeited and to make sure that it is real so that when we stand at the cash register, we can have confidence. Or when we make a Craigslist transaction, we know that it's something of value. It's good. It has value. It has truth. It is is something we can depend upon. What do we do in a world that is full of no truth, mistruth, half truth, and Facebook memes, where we count on the information that we get to be true, to have value, to help us to make decisions that will guide us through life. How do we discern where the value is? When we watch the news, CNN, ABC, NBC, Fox, whatever news you end up watching, and you see there the stories and you wonder, Is there value there that I can base my life on? Is there truth there that will guide me through life? Go to the doctor and maybe you get conflicting reports from the medical professionals and you wonder, is there value here for me? Is there truth I can live my life on? We have these appetites inside of our life that drive us, things that we want. And we hear our world tell us, you can satisfy it this way, whether it's a diet or or body image, or physical pleasure, or just a way to make money. We take this truth and we believe it has value for our lives. But what do we do in a world that is full of no truth, mistruth, half-truth, and Facebook memes? How do you know what truth has value, what truth you can base your life on? And then to, to add to that, there's a deceiver in the world who would love to lie to us. And these lies just continue to add up, and he is good. He's really good. He's going to speak right to that appetite, that thing that you want to be true. And he's going he's to lead you down that path that leads to destruction. The other day I was on Facebook, and I saw a meme that I really kind of want to be true. I don't know if it is. But you know how Washington State is outlawing plastic straws? I saw this Facebook meme with the new Starbucks sippy cup, right? The new version of their cups without straws, that new lid. And right next to it, it had a a lid and a straw, and it said the new version has more plastic than the old version. And I just desperately wanted that to be true, but I don't know if it is. Can we trust 
what we see there. In this life where there's no truth, mistruth, half-truths, and Facebook memes, we can't trust the media, we can't trust politicians, we can't trust most people. It leaves us hopeless, maybe even scared of wondering, how do we navigate this world? How do we know what truth is in a world that is full of fake truth? How do we know? Well, we're going to go ahead and open our Bibles to Proverbs chapter 7, and hopefully we'll learn something there from the text. If you're physically able, I'd love for you to stand, just in a way of respecting the Word of God as I read it. I don't know if you do that here. We don't always do it at Westside, but today I'd love to do that. And so, Proverbs chapter 7, verse 1, and it says this, My son, keep my words and, my, and treasure up my commands with you. Keep my commands and live. Keep my teaching as the apple of your eye. Bind them with your fingers. Write them on the tablets of your heart. Say to wisdom, you are my sister, and call insight your intimate friend to keep you from the forbidden woman, from the adulteress, with her smooth words. From the, from the window of my house, I have looked out through my lattice. I have seen many, I've seen among the simple, I've perceived among the youth, a young man lacking sense, passing along the street near her corner, taking the road to her house in twilight, in evening, at the time of night and darkness. And behold, the woman meets him, dressed as a prostitute, wily at heart. She is loud and wayward. Her feet do not stay home. Now in the street, now in the market. And at every corner she lies in wait. She seizes him and kisses him. And with bold face she says to him, I had to offer sacrifices. And today I have paid my vows. Now I have come out to meet you, to seek you eagerly, and I have found you. I have spread my couch with coverings, colored linen from Egypt, Egyptian linen. I've perfumed my bed with myrrh, aloe, and cinnamon. Come, let us take our fill of love till morning. Let us delight ourselves with love. My husband is not at home, and he is gone on a long journey. He took a bag of money with him. At full moon, he will come home with much seductive speech she persuaded him. With her smooth talk, she compels him at once. He follows her as an ox going to the slaughter, as a stag is caught fast till an arrow pierces its liver, as a bird rushes into a snare. He does not know that it will cost him his life. And now, O son, listen to me and be attentive to the words of my mouth. Let not your heart turn aside to her ways. Do not stray into her path. For many a victim has she laid low, and all her slain are a mighty throng. Her house is the way to Sheol, going down to the chambers of death. You may be seated. We see here that there is this forbidden woman, this fake truth that comes out to allure us and to seduce us into her way. Verse 11, we see that she is loud and wayward. She is out there to attract people to her. Her feet do not stay at home. She's in the market. She's on all the street corners. She's everywhere. She's there to pursue the young men. And then she embraces them. She kisses him 
in verse 13. We see this, this, uh, this forbidden woman. She's out there. She's pursuing young men. She's pursuing people with their lives. This adulterous or forbidden woman that's pictured here in Proverbs 7, um, clearly this passage is speaking about sex. And you're like, why did Kevin give that passage away? Well, he offered others, and I just took this one because it was the longest one he offered. Makes it easier for me. So he didn't cop out. I just want you to know that. Um, So this adulterous woman, she comes out to pursue the young man. This adulterous woman clearly is um, pictured here as someone pursuing sex. But the reality is this this passage teaches us that there is the allure or the, the seduction of life. This adulterous woman... Um, may um, exemplify other temptations that you may have in your life. It could be everything from greed, other kinds of physical pleasure, beauty, prestige, power, pride, or laziness. There are all kinds of temptations that the world throws at us that seduce us and lure us away from what God would have for us in our lives these seductions really become idols in our lives. As we read through the New Testament, we see over and over and over again how Jesus calls us away from idols and to the worship of the one true God. These idols, they present themselves in a way that is seductive to us, and each and every one of us has that in us, something that entices us, that seduces and tempts us. There are all kinds of allures of the world by which we're being seduced, the idols that we are fighting, and they are fighting for our lives. So how do we navigate through a world that is full of no truth, mistruth, half-truth, and Facebook memes, and not lose it all, and not make the decision to give up all of life to pursue an idol rather than to pursue the God of this world? Well, we see that the world is going to come and make it really attractive to follow them. In verses 14 through 22, we see this lady come out, and she begins to present the idea of adultery to this young man. She says, I am right and good. This is okay. In verse 14, when she says, I've made my sacrifices, I've paid my vows, we are good. I am right before God in this moment. Come, follow me. Next, she says, this will be good. I have spread my couch with coverings of linen, really nice, good linens from Egypt. I've perfumed my bed with the best-smelling things. This is going to be good. It won't hurt. My husband is gone. He took a bag of money. He's on a long journey and won't be back till the full moon. This will meet all of your expectations. It'll satisfy every desire of your heart. It is going to be good. She comes out and she persuades with persuasive language to try to fool this young man into pursuing her ways because they are so good. The reality is that the world's fake truth has consequences. At once, in verse 22, we see this man, he's, he's walking, he's pursuing, he almost gives off this idea of confidence as he pursues her road, her house, her corner. Yet at once, it's almost like He's hypnotized or just slumps over into a stupor. He's hooked, and he will pursue this thing like an ox going to a slaughter. 
You ever seen a cow headed to the slaughter? They have no idea what's coming. Not until the first one goes down. Or like a stag that is pierced in his liver with an arrow. If you've ever been deer hunting, you know the deer have no idea what's going on until they know what's going on, right? It's the same way in the seduction that our idols bring to us in life. They seduce us. They give us this false truth that, oh, it's going to be worth it. There's no consequences until there are. Like a bird being rushed into a snare in verse 23, they lose their lives. And the author here even says in verse 23, it will cost him his whole life. There is an allure of the world by which we are all being seduced, an idol that is in our heart, that is fighting for our lives. Maybe it is sex. Maybe it is another kind of physical pleasure, greed, beauty, prestige, power, pride, laziness. There is something that is giving you false or fake truth that wants your life. And so how do we navigate a world that is full of fake truth and not make a decision that costs us everything? Well, I think that we see some ways in here that give us the idea of how we do that. The first thing is to know truth. We need to know truth. This, the voice of the one telling the story is the voice of a parent, a father coming to his son saying, I want you to know truth. I want you to know what is real. He says in verse 1 through 4, keep my treasures and my commands. Treasure them closely. Bind them with fingers this idea of hold close. Don't let it go. Keep it for yourself. Verses 24 through 27, he talks about don't let your heart be swayed. Don't stray from the right path or to her path. Know what truth is. Know what false uh, falsity is and fake truth. Know these things well. It's kind of like farmer's insurance, the, insur- uh, the, com- the commercials that are on. Um, they say... Farmer's insurance, we know a thing or two because we've seen a thing or two. This, this real truth comes from experience. It's something that's lasted the test of time. It's gone for a long time and has not changed. When we think about counterfeit money, do you know how federal agents learn how to identify counterfeit money? It's not by studying all the counterfeit money they've ever found and identifying the schemes of the counterfeiters so that they can identify those things. The way they identify counterfeit money is by playing with real money. They hold the real thing, they touch it, they smell it, they use it, they fold it, they, they know the security features that are on it. They make sure that it, they understand what real is, and when they know what real is, fake is so obvious. It just jumps out at them. And they understand. For us, as we navigate a world full of fake truth, we have to know what real truth really is and to know it well. Jesus said in John 14, 6, I am the way and the truth and the life. Really what we're saying here is we need to know Jesus. We need to know Jesus well because he is truth. The next thing that we need to know to be able to navigate a world full of fake truth is this. We need to love truth. I think for us as we sit in this room, most of us, it's pretty obvious that we need to know truth, right? It's clear. But the reality is not only do we need to know it, we need to love it. We need to want it. We need to desire it in our lives. 
the words that the parent uses to encourage his son to know truth are words like treasure, keep. Those words mean um, value and importance. Bring it in and love it. You can see in the voice of the parent how desperately he wants his son to know this because he knows that it's true, it's worked in his life, and he loves it. He loves truth. And so in the same way that we need to know truth, we need to love it. Have you ever been in that moment where you know the right thing to do? You know that you should not go to that place. You should not go to that website. You should not spend your money in those ways. You know it. But you still do it? I know this isn't right. Maybe you even feel the conviction of the Holy Spirit in your life, but you press through that. The love of that idol is greater than our love of God and truth. We need to love truth. should know it and love it. And then the last thing is really this. We should live truth, right? It's really quite easy to know it because it's been given to us. It may be a little bit more difficult to love it in the world of fake truth, but we have to live it. We can't just let it be words on a page that mean nothing to us and don't change the way we live, but we have to do what it says. In verse 7, the parent says, I've seen this young man. He lacked sense, no sense. And so he went near her house and down her road. He went close to it. In youth ministry, one of the biggest questions I used to get was, especially concerning physical intimacy, is how far can we go before we can't go any further, right? It's this, how much can we do before we've sinned before God? Where's the line that we cannot cross? And it's so easy in those moments to look right at that line and try to get real close to the line and say, okay, as long as I don't cross that line, I'm okay. But the reality of that question is this. You've already been seduced by the idol, You already are focused on the thing, whatever that thing is that you want to do. And what we need to do is repent, defined as turn, and look at God and say, God, what is it that you would have for me? Pursue him with everything and let the idol go. We need to live these things out. We don't go near her house. We don't go down her road with the hope that we might have the encounter with this forbidden woman. We stay away. We live the truth and we are spared in life. Look at the consequences. In 26, there's many victims. 27, there's this leading to Sheol or death, that hell place, the chamber of death. We have to live truth, which means we will flee from false truth. A couple weeks ago, my wife and I celebrated our 15th wedding anniversary. It was really awesome. We, We went to Walla Walla, no kids. They have a great downtown area, wonderful time. Afterwards, uh, the next day, we went to the Palouse Falls. Has anyone been to the Palouse Falls? Like three of you, awesome. Okay, so that's the official state waterfall, if you didn't know. I learned that when I was at the Palouse Falls. Um, That was done just a few years ago. But um, as we're driving, gravel road, washboard road, we're driving up towards the parking area for the falls. There's this huge sign off on the right hand of the side, one of those construction signs that kind of flash messages. And it said, um, don't go near cliffs, dangerous water toes, 
four recent deaths. Now, I'm the kind of guy who's going to walk up to the fence and see that as just an obstacle to get where I want to go. I'm going to hop the fence so I can get the better view or those kinds of things until I realized four recent deaths. I didn't hop the fence. Honestly, I didn't even lean against the fence because I didn't want to fall. It, was not, it wasn't worth it because of the four recent deaths. I knew what that looked like. When we think about living truth, we need to stay away from false truth, the seduction and the allure of these things. Proverbs chapter 6, verse 27 and 28 say this. A man cannot... Uh, sorry. Can a man carry fire next to his chest and his clothes not be burned? Or can one walk on hot coals and his feet not be scorched? So he who goes in to his neighbor's wife, none who touches her will go unpunished. Right? It's that idea of you can't get that close. If we understand truth, we need to flee from false truth. We need to pursue what God has for us, not the desires of our heart and those idols that are there, that the world will seduce us with. Do not go near those things that you are tempted by. It's not worth it. It reveals our heart. So, what is truth? In a world that is full of fake truth, what is the real truth? Well, we know that in a circle like this, it's the Bible, right? I went to your guys' website uh, this week, and I pulled up this. This is what you believe about the Bible, says the scriptures. We believe the scriptures of the Old and New Testament to be the verbally inspired word of God. We believe these 66 books are God-breathed, complete, inerrant in the original writings, infallible, and are the final authority of faith and life. That's what we claim this book to be. If we look at this, it means that the whole thing from Genesis to Revelation is the word of God, verbally inspired, the very words that came out of the mouth of God are on the page. We believe that these are the very words of the God of the universe that he has given to us. We believe that it is complete. We don't need anything else to know God and to live the life that he has called us to. It is inerrant, which just means it doesn't have errors. And then I love this part that we always add in there, in the original writings. We need to understand that. It's unfair. It's infallible, will not fail. It will always stand the test of time. And it should be the final authority. If this speaks to something, this wins, right? Do we believe it? That's what we say. But when we get into that moment where whatever our forbidden woman is comes to us, do we believe what this says or do we believe what she says? Are her seductive and alluring tactics stronger than what's here? Can we really base our whole life on this? Or is it just more fake news and a long line of stuff that we see on TV and on Facebook? Well, for me, I believe that this is the only real truth there is. And I think we can start walking through some just basic facts of why we trust the Bible to be that truth and to understand why it has stood the test of time for thousands of years. One of the statements in your uh, statement of faith is inerrant in the original writings. Westside has the same statement. 
And what that means is that when the apostles wrote the original documents, they had no errors in them. They were exactly what God wanted. Have you been to that museum that has the original documents yet? You haven't because they don't exist, right? We don't have the actual documents written. And so they were without error in those documents. How do we know that what we have right here is without error? How do we know? Well, there's a science called textual criticism that has gone through a long study of things and taken all of the manuscripts and partial manuscripts that we have of the text, and they've boiled it down. And it is pretty much not argued that 99% we have the original. Within 99% accuracy, what we read in our text is the original. That's pretty awesome. And that's not just Christian scholars that would say that. Those are textual critics, both Christian and non-Christian, who agree that this is 99% accurate to what the original was. It's pretty high confidence. And where the errors are, where, where the debate is, was it this or that, are really insignificant. Really insignificant and never change the meaning of the text. That can give us confidence that what we have is accurate to what God said and what we needed to see. The next thing that we look at here as we think about is this real text. Is it consistent or does it contradict itself? Right? You read through here and you wonder, how does that, like, where are the inconsistencies, right? We hear that all the time. The Bible's full of inconsistencies. The question that I ask those people is, where? Which ones? Most of the time, oh, I've just heard people who are really smart say there's inconsistencies. It's primarily the answer. And every once in a while, they'll actually pull out something that is an apparent contradiction or an inconsistency in the text. And most every single time, we can go and reason our way through it. And if we can't, we just haven't figured it out yet. The Bible is so consistent. Take, for example... Some people will go to Philippians chapter 2 and say, where it says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And they'll say, see, you have to work for your salvation. And if you go to Ephesians chapter 2, it says, salvation is a free gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. Look at the contradiction right there in the heart of the gospel. There's a contradiction in the Bible. Except that, if you look at what we believe, We are saved by grace, free gift from God, no works needed. You cannot earn it. Absolutely believe that. And when we are saved, we work at it. Not because we're earning it, but because we love the God who saved us. 1 John 5, verse 3 says, This is love for God, that you would obey his commands, and his commands are not burdensome. And so if I love the God who saved me, I'm going to work with everything that I have to see God come out in me and the fruit of the Spirit be produced in me. It's not a contradiction. It's a deepening of those truths in us. Internally, from cover to cover, this is a consistent book that tells us one message about a great God who sent his son Jesus to die for us. Externally, the book is verifiable. You can go to the places that we read about in the Old Testament and see those things. There's been archaeological discoveries to say that those places are real. You can go to Jerusalem and touch the foundation of the temple. There are all these kinds of places that you can go and see that what it says is true. It's externally verifiable. 
It has stood the test of time of thousands of years and has not changed. Well, I thought the Catholic Church changed it. No, the manuscripts we have go before the Catholic Church. It is the same. Has not changed. It has stood the test of time. And there's testimony. There were 11 disciples, right? There's 12 disciples. One of them abandoned his post. 11, 10 of the 11 that were left died brutal deaths. Crucified, beheaded, their entrails were yanked out of their body. Those are horrible deaths. Why would someone do that who knew they were dying for a lie? I don't know anyone who would do that. This book, the testimony of the disciples, proves that what is here is accurate. We have really close to the original. It has internal consistency, externally viable testimony of the disciples. But honestly, probably the thing that is right there amongst all of those details is your testimony. The testimony of how God has used this book in your life to bring change. I know for me that when I first came to know Jesus, it wasn't because I had read the Bible, but it was because there was a pain and a fear inside of me that I wanted to be gone. And I believed that maybe this God might be able to do it, or at least I had heard he could do it. So I went into my bedroom and I got on my knees and I just said, I don't know if you really exist, but if you do, this pain sucks, will you take it away? And he did, that fast, when I said amen. What that caused me to do is open the Bible to learn about this God who can take away pain. And throughout college and since then, been reading this text, and the things that happen as I read are unbelievable. God does amazing things through his word in our lives. And so we have a book that is claimed to be truth, that is accurate to what the original was, that is internally consistent, externally verifiable, and there are testimonies of thousands of years of how this book has worked in the lives of people. We have confidence that this book is the Word of God. It is verbally inspired, straight out of his mouth, written by spirit-controlled men, sustained by God through all of time. It's his breath. It is complete. It's without error. It's infallible, and it's a final authority in everything it speaks to. This is truth. It has not changed, and it will not change. So how do we live this out? The first thing is we have to know it, which means we read it. Constantly and consistently, we read it. Today I was uh, at Westside for our first service and Pastor Rick stood up and he said, do you want to know the silver bullet, the, the best and easiest way to know the Bible short time, just really quick to know it? You guys ready? You want to know this trick? Me too, it doesn't exist. It doesn't exist, we just have to read it. Day by day, week by week, slowly ingesting what God has for us. And as we know the truth, it'll change us. And as it changes us, it'll become easier to identify fake truth. Second thing that we need to do is we need to love it. We need to love the truth. It's really easy to know that it's truth, but it's harder to love that truth. 
in your life today, is there something that you love more than God and the truth that he has given to us? Is there some, is there some forbidden woman in your life that is seducing you and drawing you away from the path that God would have for you? Today is the day to repent of that and to ask God to give you a love for his word that will never end because knowing it is not enough. You've got to love it. And when we love it, then we'll live it, which means we'll do it, even when it's hard, even when it's tough, even when you have to say goodbye to that mistress that you've had for a long time. Living the truth is so important. For some of us, that mistress is the temptation of lust, of sexual pleasure and desire. And the world tells us that it is good and that it will satisfy every desire of your heart. The truth is, it's short-lived and it destroys your life. But what the Bible says is that a lifelong relationship with your spouse is where you will be sexually satisfied. And if your expectations, your desires, your heart don't line up with the text, what the Bible says, then you've allowed a mistress into your life. And you need to evaluate your expectations, repent of those things, and pursue what the Bible has for you. Really, this is true in any temptation, whether it's pride, vanity, power, prestige, or whatever. The world is going to bring fake truth to you, and it will become seductive and alluring. The question is, will you value that more than you value our God? It's time that we say goodbye to our forbidden women, our mistress, and pursue the truth that God has in his, in his word, to love it because we love God, and to live it because there's no other way. When I was a teenager, um, I lived in a home that was a non-Christian home, and um, I had two rules. Rule number one, my dad had to know where I was. Rule number two, he had to know who I was with. It got me into a lot of trouble, but I never got in trouble with him because I always told him where I was and who I was with. And it worked out great for us in that moment, which I realized now was not great. So there's this one time, I come to my dad and I said, hey dad, there's this party and it's at this place. And here are the people I think are going to be there. There might be more, there might be less, I don't know. But here's, here's what I know. Okay, and so he asked me a few more questions. And then um, he did something that I actually don't ever remember him doing before that and since then. He said, bud, he called me bud, don't go. This one is not a good idea. And I looked at my dad, who I really, really love and respect. He and I have a great relationship. And I looked at him and I said, sweet, see you tomorrow. And I left. I got in my car. I was going to the party. I got to the end of the street. There was a stop sign. And I felt this weird, don't do this. I knew the truth that my dad had shared with me. And I desperately loved my dad. And so I loved this truth. And so as a junior in high school, I turned around on this Friday night and I went home. 
And I sat on the couch, and I watched TGIF with my dad. I lived his truth because I loved him, which meant I loved his truth. And I knew it because he was willing to share it with me. If we're going to live in a world that is full of no truth, mistruth, half-truth, and Facebook memes, without making a decision that will ruin our life, we have to know the truth. We have to love the truth. And we have to live the truth. Let's pray.